This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Was how professional the Mexican But government. are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. In the last three years, the economy has shrunk by a third. The government blames U.S.-led sanctions, but the widespread view is that this is more the result of the mismanagement of the country's vast oil resources. It seems that Venezuela is always running out of options, right? We have sanctions, we have isolation efforts, we have multilateral and bilateral diplomatic efforts, we have multiple dialogue attempts. We have now a cash-strapped regime that will soon lose its legitimacy of origin starting in January 10th, the date the new presidential period begins. But now we have an increasing consensus in, in the international community on both the criminal nature of the Maduro regime, including narco-trafficking and other illicit activities, but also that um, this is no longer a Venezuelan crisis. This is a regional crisis that is affecting neighboring countries like Colombia, Brazil, but also other countries uh, south in Central America, as well in the U.S. My name is Moises Rendon. I'm the Associate Director and Associate Fellow of the CSIS Americas Program. and filling in today for Richard Miles, the regular host of 35 West. And to help us understand better what other options are left for Venezuela, is here with me, Fernando Kutz. Fernando served as Director for South America and Acting Senior Director for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the White House National Security Council. Fernando also served as the Senior Advisor to National Security Advisor McMaster. But before that, Fernando joined government through USAID, serving, among other things, as the Special Assistant to the Administrator for National Security Affairs. Fernando also worked on President Obama's National Security Council staff in the Office of Global Engagement at the White House, and later served as the special advisor for President Obama's trip to Cuba. Fernando, we're delighted to have you here. You have such a fascinating background, very interesting. I think you're one of the few people I know that have both the perspective from two very different administrations, right? Like the Obama administration to the Trump administration. Tell us a little bit about you. How do you become involved in your early career in such a crucial role in contributing policy in such an important place like Washington in the White House? And, and how, how, do you, how do you see all these developments in the last few years in your career? Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Moses, for having me. Thank you uh, to CSIS also for hosting. Uh, you know, I've, I think I've been uh, just kind of lucky. I've been uh, at the right place at the right time a lot of times. Um, I uh, uh, started in, uh, in government in 2012 as a presidential management fellow and uh, happened to have a great boss at USAID who was very supportive of, uh, had actually just come back from the White House for, for spent three years at the NSC uh, and was very supportive of me going over, uh, you know, I was months into my time in government, didn't even really know what the NSC was, uh, and he kind of pushed me on. Uh, and so that was my first experience when I went as a special assistant in, uh, in 2013. Uh, and, and then I was immediately kind of drawn to it, immediately fascinated by it, uh, learned a, a ton, uh, loved the fast pace of it, um, and uh, was fortunate enough to, to be called back to work on the Cuba trip and then 
got called back again and, and uh, by President Trump's team and, and uh, uh, well, really actually by President Obama's team still at the time, but with the, uh, the blessing of the Trump team for me to stay on at least <laughs> and, uh, and uh, have, have and just kind of moved up from there and, and have done a lot of interesting things from there. Uh, it, it's a fascinating place filled with really good, hardworking people who are, who are really just uh, doing their best to, to, you know, make sure our country is safe and our foreign policy is good. Fascinating. Now you are based in Washington again, but in the Cohen Group, right? That's correct? That's right, yeah. So now I'm uh, with the Cohen Group. I'm a senior associate there uh, working uh, primarily on Latin America, but but also just kind of covering different things around the board. Okay, Venezuela. This is a country that was probably the richest country in the region and one of the richest in the world, but it's now completely collapsed, right? We see one of the worst humanitarian crises in the region and in Venezuela now affecting, as we mentioned, other countries in the war. But let's talk about the options again, the policy options that we have. Um, and, and there is one issue that I, I want to get your thoughts on, which is, you know, the Washington, the, 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 based on latest report from the Washington Post, um, the Trump administration may be preparing to add Venezuela to the U.S. list of state sponsors of terrorism. So what are the implications, Fernando, to get Venezuela in this list? Um, and again, I mean, the, the, the goal here is to increase pressure, right, on a regime that is, is cash-strapped, is losing legitimacy, is isolated. Um, will adding Venezuela in, a, in this list of terror, the sponsor of terrorism will help with that goal to increase that pressure that is needed? Well, I think when you think about increasing pressure, there's there's two primary levers that you do it uh, through. Uh, one is through rhetoric. Uh, the other is through um, actions, right? Uh, I think going to the state sponsor of terror list at this point in time falls primarily under the rhetoric category. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say it's it's bad in any way. I, I actually think it's... it's um, you know, I think it's 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 an approach. It's definitely an approach that merits consideration and, and uh, in some regards makes sense. Uh, but I don't think it necessarily will change a whole lot on the uh, policy action kind of front. Uh, you know, the, if you look at the implications, the legal implications of, of right. the of the sanctioning of the of the uh, state sponsor of terror list, uh, uh, it's predominantly involves things that uh, we already are not doing with Venezuela. So it's a lot of arms sales that we could no longer sell. Of course, we don't sell any uh, kind of military equipment to Venezuela, haven't in many years. Uh, and it's, um, you know, assistance that we can't provide. Uh, we already don't provide assistance to Venezuela, and, and including humanitarian assistance. And that's not by our own choosing. That's because Maduro refuses to recognize that there's a humanitarian problem, refuses to accept humanitarian assistance from the United States, from any other country in the region, from the UN, from anybody. Right? Yeah, he just even, refuses. This, even Switzerland offer aid and they rejected it. And in fact, he makes a point that any time that there is a crisis somewhere else in the world to send humanitarian aid uh, you know, of, of his own. Uh, which is, uh, you know, when, when you look at the, again, the humanitarian situation on the ground in Venezuela, that's, that's sad and, and disastrous that yeah. they're uh, somehow taking food away from the starving people and sending it to other countries just for a political point. Uh, but that's the reality. So, so, so are we able to provide anything right now? We're not. And I'm sure that whatever steps uh, are taken by, by the government right now, uh, they would be with caveats that allow for humanitarian provisions in the case that we're able to start providing them. That you know, I would be shocked if that's not the case. So so in reality, again, what does it change on a day-to-day basis from a policy perspective? Uh, probably nothing to very little. 
Uh, on the rhetoric side, though, it's a significant escalation, right? If you look at the countries that we currently have designated yes. a state sponsor of surf terror, it's Sudan, it's Syria, it's Iran, and it's North Korea, four countries, right? So in the whole world. So to make Venezuela be the fifth country, that's a significant step. Uh, it, it reminds me, when I was there in uh, 2017, uh, I guess last year, uh, one of the big steps that we, we pushed for on the rhetoric side was to deem Maduro a dictator, right? And at the time, it was a bit controversial, and some people said, whoa, you know, we're a little bit ahead of the curve. Now I'd say it's pretty accepted, and the whole region's kind of calling him a dictator. But at the time, uh, when we uh, labeled him as a dictator, also, we only had the U.S. government had only labeled four individuals in, who are living in the world uh, as dictators, wow. same four countries. Yeah. So it actually is a natural step, I think, uh, following up on the dictator label to, to kind of take it a step further and also follow suit and say, well, then, you know, if these four countries are also state sponsors of terror, let's go down this, uh, you know, this path with Venezuela as well. Yeah. And that aligns with this new label that um, former ambassador to former U.S. ambassador to Venezuela, William Brownfield, has been pushing for. Like, we're not talking about dictatorship only. It's not even a narco state as initially some experts and governments were trying to push as a label, but this is more broad. This is more like a mafia state based on the ambassador's remarks that we hosted him in CSIS not too long ago. Uh, are any implications of having a mafia state? Uh, what, what, what is the difference of, 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 on how the U.S. and the international community respond not to a dictatorship but to a mafia state that is involved at all levels in criminal activities like narco-trafficking, money laundering, corruption, and human rights abuses. I mean, we're talking about different incentives there than even beyond a dictatorship have, right? So is there any any difference that you see there that the way we should respond to this um, mafia state in Venezuela? Absolutely. And I completely agree with uh, what Ambassador Branfield's uh, saying. You know, and, and of course, if anybody knows what they're talking about, it's Ambassador Branfield. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I think, uh, you know, I think if you look at the, the incentives that we've tried to create, uh, going back to, to, you know, when I started to really focus on Venezuela, uh, uh, you know, January of 17 on, we've been trying our best to kind of fracture that inner circle around Maduro. We're saying, well, you know, how do we how do we move Venezuela back towards democracy instead mm -hmm. of towards, uh, you know, now the, the dictatorship model that they're currently at? Uh, and we figured, well, you're not really going to convince Maduro to by himself do this. But if you start fracturing that those relationships around him, maybe that will add the pressure that's needed to kind of start forcing his hand. Uh, I think the problem that we've run into repeatedly is that that inner circle uh, is so reliant on each other, right? It's like you're saying, it's it's, it's a narco state, it's a mafia state, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're all uh, intertwined and, and they're all in this together. Uh, so so there's very little daylight between them. You know, they, they all know, and, and this goes further than just the inner circle, you know, look at the upper echelons of the military, right? How does he still have support uh, there? Well, uh, it's all bribery. It's all money that keeps flowing through them. And, and the moment the money dries up, now he's in trouble, right? Then he, then I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. Uh, but as long as that, that kind of criminal uh, enterprise continues and the, the illegal money continues to flow, uh, then then you have a situation where they're all happy and they're happy to turn the other way as, as whatever happens, happens, you know? Um, uh, so, so I think uh, that's been that's been a real issue that the international community has faced, that the domestically folks have faced as they try to kind of figure out how to restore democracy. Let's move. Let's move on to corruption. 
they always hot topic in Latin America. We always have so many corruption scandals coming from the region. But this is kind of different. Um, former national treasurer in Venezuela, Alejandro Andrade, he was sentenced just earlier this week to 10 years in prison earlier um, by a U.S. judge for his central role in a $1 billion bribery. And I repeat, $1 billion bribery, a money laundering scheme that enabled him to acquire luxury real estate and other assets in South Florida. So my, my question is more from a pragmatic point of view, Fernando. Um, we have um, all these ill-gotten assets sitting in, a, in U.S. bank accounts, um, but we also had the need to support democratic groups that are trying to keep a light on in Venezuela and outside of Venezuela. And we're also looking, the international community is seeking international uh, financial support to alleviate the suffering of the Venezuelan people. Um, even in the day after scenario, Venezuela is going to need a lot of international financial support, right? Uh, so my question is is simple. Uh, it, can this, but I know it's technical at the same time, but, but I want to get your thoughts on, is it possible to unfreeze these ill-gotten assets taken from the Venezuelan people to put using a good cause, like helping Venezuela today and during a day after a scenario. Is, is this possible at all? So, so I, you know, for, for the technical answer, the legal answer, I'd have to defer to my friends in, in the Treasury Department and, and the OFAC office, I think specifically, uh, who, who know the stuff inside and out, right? Right. Um, uh, but I will say I, it's harder than, than it seems, right? I, I think that we are bound by certain laws about how, what we can do uh, that makes our, our um, uh, if you sit down through one of these internal meetings we, we used to have at the White House with the Department of Justice, with, you know, with the uh, Treasury folks, uh, it's, it's a lot more complex than, than um, uh, you'd think, you know. And, and so, uh, for example, when you sanction money, uh, I know we can't touch it. It's just frozen, uh, presumably for, for eternity, right, until we unsanction uh, that individual and then that money has to be returned to that individual. But we can't, if it's just a sanction-based freeze, then it's, it's literally a freeze. Uh, I think, you know, from, from if my memory serves me well, when, when we went after Tarek al-Assami, who at the time was the vice president of Venezuela, uh, we went after him with, uh, with uh, you know, indictments. And, and that was a little different. Yes. That allowed us to actually, uh, you know, go through a legal process at least where we could perhaps, uh, you know, get the money and use, utilize it for a public good in Venezuela. Uh, since it was money that was stolen from the people of Venezuela. Uh, so, so it's definitely uh, a bit more technical and complex than I wish it was. Uh, and uh, maybe that's something that Congress uh, can, can take up and, and make a little easier for us, uh, for, for folks uh, who are uh, you know, now working on Venezuela policy. Uh, because I, I think at the end of the day, we all agree that uh, this is bad this is bad stuff, right? This is stealing. This is the worst kind of stealing, uh, stealing from a poor uh, country that shouldn't be a poor country, but right. is because of uh, bad decisions made. Uh, and, and so uh, it's, it's you know, when people are dying in the streets, when people are literally, uh, you know, unable to afford uh, uh, food and water and shelter, uh, and, and you have these leaders at the top, who are self-made billionaires, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the, the latest guy to be indicted, but also, like I said earlier, Tarek al-Assami, a career-long uh, public servant, supposedly. We all know his salary, supposedly. Uh, guys should not have, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, just in the United States. And yet he did. 
uh, and houses and boats and everything else, right? So, so that's that's the worst kind of uh, of person, and I think we really do need to go after them and restore that money to the people of Venezuela. Yeah, I remember the IDB um, is trying to play a more active role to in the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, right? And and he, they came out with a number, uh, if I remember correct correctly was about 1.6 billion dollars are needed in the next year uh, to respond accordingly to the crisis the migration refugee crisis in Colombia and in the region so we I mean you know we have one billion sitting mm -hmm. somewhere in Florida so we're covering almost almost all I, that is I guarantee you we, we have way more than 1.6 exactly, billion <laughs> exactly let's move on to the Venezuelan presidential countdown issue and that's something that we have been trying to shed light in CSIS because I mean it has not only political repercussions but also judiciary legal implications in the international arena. And so just for those who are not that familiar with Venezuela, about nearly about 50 countries did not recognize the results of the Venezuelan presidential elections held earlier this year in May. And this leaves the open the possibility that Nicolás Maduro will not be recognized as president of Venezuela by these countries beginning on January 10th of 2019, which is the date the new presidential period begins. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the question is how these 50 countries that include the U.S., Canada, the Lima Group, the European Union, Australia, even Japan, um, how all these countries should be responding post-January 10th, um, is not recognizing Maduro, a feasible alternative, and if not recognizing Maduro, who should they be recognizing? And and you know, just give us your thoughts on on what can the U.S. and international community do post January 10th in that regard. You know, I think we're we're getting to a point in Venezuela uh, when it comes to policy formulation. Uh, where we're really uh, getting close to kind of the end of the rope, right, where, where we just run out of options. Uh, we, we've tried individual sanctions. We've tried wider sanctions. We've tried going after bonds. We've tried uh, uh, many different things. Uh, so, so I think what, what's lacking right now is some sort of momentum, some sort of hope uh, for the people of Venezuela, for the opposition, for the international community, uh, something that folks can look to and say, uh, all right, you know, maybe this will lead to that, you know. Uh, and so, um, you know, if, if this is what that is, then I think it's a positive thing. I, I think, you know, if, if, if the international community can focus on this state and start to really raise questions around legitimacy, um, I think that could really lead towards, again, some sort of positive momentum. But I think there's a few questions that would have to be answered for that to happen. You know, number one, uh, if not Maduro, then who? Right. And, and so uh, that's where the people of Venezuela and, and whether it's the opposition uh, or, or, you know, whatever the exists, national assembly, for the, example, the National Assembly. Sure, sure. Whatever body exists or organization exists or new organization wants to mm -hmm. you know, be formed by the people on the ground. But something needs to step up and say, you know, here is a viable alternative. Uh, here is a, a you know representative of the, that would make sense somehow, whether again it's a national assembly president or, or whatever it is, but something that the international community could actually recognize, not just some you know Joe Schmo, but but you know some some uh, uh, legally sound option. 
Uh, and then the the people in, Venez- in Venezuela need to also start rallying again, you know. And, and again, I think uh, it's a bit of a chicken or the egg situation. Does the international community have to act first? Does the, do the people in Venezuela have to act first? But but it's it's it has to kind of move, and it has to move fairly quickly given where we are, uh, you know. And of course, with holidays coming up and everything else. So so I, I would say that uh, you know, is there a chance that that is the momentum that we've been waiting for? That that's the hope a lot of folks have been waiting for? Absolutely, the chance is there. The opportunity is there. Uh, as you said, a lot of countries are involved in this. A lot of countries could choose to go down this path of not recognizing Maduro and moving f- quickly forward in that direction. But it can only happen if the people of Venezuela uh, develop their own alternative to Maduro. And, and as of right now, there's just no indication that that's moving in that direction. Anything else that the region and the U.S. should be doing on Venezuela? Again, we, we, this is a long-term crisis. This has been going for a while. Uh, and, you know, just to put it on the table, we, we hosted a, a scenarios exercise which the, the main conclusion was in order to see a change in Venezuela, you need both the internal pressure, but also the external pressure at the same time. And unfortunately, we haven't seen those internal and external pressure happening together. Um, so a, a, anything else that the region uh, should be doing to help Venezuela at this point? Any 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 other alternative that you see down the road here? Well, you know, I, I think the region is now really facing this as a crisis, finally. You know, I think a lot of folks in the policy world have been warning, hey, this is a problem, this is a problem, both here in the U.S., across the region. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, given the way the world works, until your hair is on fire itself, you know, you can people can tell you your hair will be on fire tomorrow, but you just don't pay attention, right, until it's actually burning. Uh, I think for, for Colombia, for Brazil, uh, for Peru, uh, for Ecuador, the, the hair, their hair is now on fire, right? They're realizing, okay, this is a real problem. It's not going to go away, uh, and it's going to have real-life implications for us. Um, but I, I still think the fire is going to have to burn bigger before they decide to really address it fully. Uh, they're still at the stage, I think a lot of these countries in the region are still at the stage of saying, we need a solution, we need a solution, but we don't really want to talk about, you know, anything too drastic or talk about anything that's too, uh, you know, uh, controversial or anything like that. Um, now, again, that's why I'm saying I think we're, we're getting close to the end of the rope as far as policymaking goes. If I think a year from now or, or, you know, whatever it is, a year and a half from now, two years from now, if the crisis continues and, and the migrants continue to come at the rate they're coming right now, if we see, you know, instead of 2 million in Colombia, we see 4 million in Colombia. Yeah. If in Peru, where they're already trying to keep people away at 500,000, we get to a million and a half. In Brazil, where they had to send in the army after 100,000, we get to a million or a million and a half or 2 million. Then we're going to have a real crisis. And that's going to be a domestic political crisis in each one of these countries individually. And then each one of these leaders is going to have to step up and say, all right, then, what am I prepared to do right now? And it's not going to be long-term solutions. It's not going to be middle-term solutions at that point. At that point, they're going to need knee-jerk reactions that can somehow stop the crisis. And that's what I worry about. I think unless we start really taking this seriously right now, having the whole region really galvanize around a solution to this, not just say pretty things, not just rhetoric, but actual action, 
you know, actual uh, going after the corrupt officials, going after Maduro, not recognizing Maduro, p- closing their embassies, pulling out, uh, doing uh, just really, uh, you know, a- a- as aggressive things as-, as possible to try to resolve this crisis right now. If we don't do it that way, then what we're going to be left with is uh, more of a desperate situation, uh, whether it's a few months or a year or a year and a half from now, uh, where where I think folks will be more inclined to then go to some sort of military option. Fascinating conversation. Thank you again, Fernando, for being in 35 West. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.